Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins. This is episode 104. And I'd just like to start off the podcast by giving a big thank you to everyone in the Mandarin Blueprint community. Uh, the last two weeks of August, obviously it's over now for anybody uh, watching the podcast, but the last two weeks of August, we ran a sale on lifetime access to the course. And uh, what an overwhelming upswell of support. Um, you know, Luke and I have never felt so proud of the course as we have these past two weeks because uh, so many people have taken advantage of the offer and sent us these very, very kind uh, emails telling us that they thought it was well worth it. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that uh, it really, um, it's given us a runway as a company to be able to continue to make great content for everybody uh, for years to come. We've got so many things on uh, the docket and we're really excited about the different new plans we have coming, um, new content regarding uh, longer form graded content, regarding uh, grammar points, regarding new uh, mnemonic methods that we're going to add to vocabulary. There's so many things that we have uh, that we're preparing, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. But just first of all, uh, just want to say thank you to all people who've gotten involved and even some people who... Uh, didn't have the means to take advantage of the offer, still sent us uh, emails encouraging us, and they're sticking with their subscriptions for now. Uh, but just thank you so much. It's been a huge help, and it's a relief for us to know that we have the uh, you know means to continue making great stuff for all of you and helping you learn Mandarin faster. So we'll start off today with a grammar point, uh, which is going to be a simple grammar point, actually. It's just about softening tone with n at the end of a sentence. So this is a character that you actually don't learn until about, uh, I think it's like level 35 or something in the Mandarin Blueprint method, but it comes up a lot as a top-down word because similar to, say, ma or ba or uh, let's see what else is there, ah, that you put at the end of a sentence, there are these different tone creation characters that you can put that, you know, they give a tone of suggestion like ba or they give a tone of a yes or no question like ma or there's another ma that's more like a tone of obviousness, like, uh, you know, obviously it's this ma, right? Uh, and then there's n. And n has the function of softening the tone of a question. Now, sometimes n can be indicating a present tense, but we're mostly going to talk about the softening of tone of voice. Because, of course, Chinese is a tonal language, but when we, when we say that Chinese is a tonal language, what we mean is that on the level of the word there are different tones, which is, and they, they affect the meaning of the words. But that doesn't mean that there's not still tone of voice at the level of the sentence. And tone of voice at the level of the sentence is something we can totally understand as English speakers because we do that all the time. For example, um, I say, uh, you know, that's your coffee versus that's your coffee. Right? Like it's like by changing the tone of voice, I change the meaning of the sentence, but it's not necessarily like a tonal language at the level of the word like Chinese is. So this is an example of how you can change the tone of a sentence using a character right at the end. Now, let's first point out the example of where you can use n to indicate present tense. For example, 他在吃饭呢? Now that n at the end of the sentence indicates that she is currently eating. Now, there's also the zai that indicates that she's currently eating, but both of them kind of in combination 
mean that she's eating at the moment. And the thing about that is that if there's a period at the end of the sentence, you can be fairly certain that this isn't the example of n uh, softening the tone of a question. So in that case, you'll see that pretty clearly. And, you know, sometimes uh, you'll use n alone to indicate present tense, but often it's combined with either zai or zhu, uh, which is uh, yet another clue you can use to see if it's in that function. But let's focus on the gentle tone of voice that comes with a question. So here's a sentence from level 14. 他的儿子有什么看法或想法呢? What views or opinions does his son have? Right? And so in this sentence, the question word is 什么? So 他的儿子有什么? Right? And so whatever comes after it, we know it's going to be a question because we have shema in it and we have a question mark at the end. But if you just say, uh, that sentence is perfectly fine. It's not particularly seen as rude. But if you want to come across as, you know, nice, gentler, you can just pop on that n at the end. And this will give you the, uh, just a, a respectful uh, sort of inquisition. You're just sort of saying, what uh, what might his views or perspectives be? And you're just trying to be nice about it. And that's really the only difference. Uh, naturally, this isn't always required. So the use of na to make a question gentler is most common when the relationship between the speaker and the listener is less intimate, at least in China, right? So the better you know someone, the less likely you are to stand on ceremony, as they put it. So if you want to think of it as a simple rule, no, at the end of a question, makes things nicer. So let's take a look at another sentence here. This is from level 17. Do you want to take out or dine in? So this sentence, a further illustration of the above point. The context is that a host or a hostess or a restaurant employee is politely asking a patron what their preference is. And this is like not as intimate a relationship as you would have with, you know, your your girlfriend or something, right? And so the relationship is professional and therefore has a tone of being kind and gentle and polite. Let's take a look at another sentence. Sentence three is from level level 20. 我这边很好,你呢? I'm all good here. How about you? So you'll probably hear people say, 你呢? at the end of sentences all the time. And this person is almost certainly responding to something like, 你最近怎么样? 你最近怎么样? Which means, how have you been? Right? So, after they respond, it would be redundant for them to say, 我这边很好,你最近怎么样? Right? If you said that, it would be kind of like, why are you repeating the whole question? You can just say, 你呢? To politely throw the question back to them. So whatever they asked you, by saying Nina, you're asking the exact same question back. And it just saves time. It's natural for these types of things to develop in a language because, as I say, I mean, can you imagine that every single time that you asked a question and somebody wanted to ask it back to you, they repeated the entire question? That would get tedious, right? So um, bear in mind that this n to make questions softer is very useful in your early days of speaking Chinese because if you're going to have a question and you want to make sure that the person that you're talking to understands that you're asking a question because, you know, you're in the early days. You might have pronounced something wrong. Maybe you uh, 
uh, used the wrong word somewhere. But by throwing n at the end, there's no way they're going to be confused about whether or not you asked a question because there's going to be a question word in there somewhere. You're going to say shema. You're going to say shema shahol. You're going to say shay, uh, that mean, meaning what, what time, and who, respectively. And so that being the case, it's if you throw it in at the end of these question sentences, one, you're going to be polite. You're going to sound kind and polite, which is nice. And two, you're going to make it clear to them, even if you made a mistake, okay, well, they're, they're trying to ask a question. So they might, even if you made a mistake, they'll try, they'll understand where you're coming from and maybe ask for a clarification. So it's very useful to have there. And of course, Nina is super common. You're going to say that all the time. So bear that in mind as you move forward. So that is the grammar point covering the tag. GW, tone of voice, n, gentle, yu qi zi. Next, let's move on to the comments and emails. We got an email from Rick Santos. He says, thank you for the generous offer, Luke and Phil. And this is referring to the lifetime offer I mentioned at the beginning. I think I'll have a budget for next year, so I will continue on with your wonderful program for one year and renew next year. You're both doing a great, great job. Congratulations to both of you, and may you have more windfalls to come. You really deserve the outpouring of gratitude from your students and our affirmation of trust in you and the Mandarin Blueprint Method, Rick. Well, thank you, Rick. That's a, that's quite a thing to say. It's quite a thing to hear. And it's it still amazes me every day that people, you know, who are previously strangers uh, send these very kind emails. And please understand that it never goes un unappreciated. Um, it's something that Luke and I really enjoy about our day. It's this great thing that we get. And so, um, you know, what we're going to do is repay this outpouring of gratitude with uh, harder work and more content for you guys. So uh, it's the most motivating thing in the world to have people who uh, not only send their gratitude, but also send their hard-earned finances over to you to keep you going. And it's kind of cool in a way you know, you guys are saying, here are resources. We value what you're doing. Keep doing it. So it's this uh, it's hugely motivating, and we're going to uh, never stop so long as this uh, this train keeps running. And uh, right now, we've got a big old runway, so we appreciate that from everyone. Next, this is a very good one uh, from Soren in the community forum, and uh, this will help me address some of the new things we're going to be covering uh, over the next few months. So uh, Soren says, hi all, excited to embark on the journey towards fluency in Mandarin Chinese together. I'm at level 27 and really struggling with the longer sentences, opinion pieces, etc., predominantly given the lack of English translations. I realize the lack of English translations is the norm from here, hence why I'd be curious to hear what experiences others have at this stage of the course. At this level, 400 plus characters in, I was really hoping it would eventually click, but I have some doubts this will happen as despite studying six or seven hours each day, knowing all the individual characters, there are still plenty of sentences I'm not sure I fully understand, as I can't derive any logical meaning from the characters as I know them. This means I spend a lot of time checking up on whether there are other readings of the characters I am unfamiliar with, etc., I tried for a while to merely leave the pieces and go back to the earliest ones, as presumably these should be easier. This has definitely helped as naturally my vocab and exposure to the characters have expanded, and I have seen them in more contexts, etc. But I still struggle and find listening particularly difficult. 
Is this just normal? Shall I keep going and be more patient? Am I doing something wrong? Shall I accept reading without understanding the content? I will definitely keep on going, but I'm a bit frustrated I am not doing as well as it seems to be expected at this stage of the course. So let's go through this bit by bit and talk about what we're gonna do to help Soren feel better about this. So the first thing to understand is that phase four, the longer form content in phase four, is you could almost see the entire phase as an introduction to longer form content because uh, the longer form content that comes up in phase four is the first time you're ever seeing grammar at the level of the paragraph or the dialogue or the short story, right? So we all understand that grammar on the level of the sentence is essentially, in Chinese, all it is is adding words or moving words around in the sentence that creates grammar. And it's similar with uh, a paragraph. So you put a sentence at the beginning of a paragraph versus at the end of a paragraph, it could change the meaning uh, immensely depending on the surrounding context. And so naturally when you're in the first stage of anything new which the entirety of phase four is a new thing called longer form content it's only natural that it's going to be the hardest that it will ever be right because it's new right and so you're you're carving out those new neural patterns right so your brain has already started to create some patterns that relate to chinese characters and relate some uh, relate to words and each time you see the word again you reactivate that pattern but then when you see that word in a larger context, you kind of have to expand that pattern out to say, okay, now, now that character is not just a mnemonic scene where, that has a pronunciation and a meaning. It's also in a relationship with these other characters and then another, other characters at the level of the sentence and then other characters at the level of the paragraph. So it's, there's a lot of carving out going on, right? And so that's to some degree to be expected. So the first question is, is this to be expected? Well, yeah, kind of. Yeah, that is true. But we're going to do a couple of things uh, to help you uh, through this process. So the first thing to re remember is that this is not the last time you will see these longer form pieces of content. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of phase four, it's pretty tough when you only have 300 or so characters to create longer form content that is good, that is to say that it actually has some interesting meaning or potentially something that could be helpful and is also 98% comprehensible. And that 98% comprehension level is what's called extensive reading. And that's where you get the best type of acquisition. Now, by the time you get to the intermediate course, all the longer form content, the first time you see it is at 98% uh, comprehension. But that's easier to do because at that point, you already know at least 80% of Chinese by frequency. By the end of the intermediate course, you know 94% of Chinese by frequency. So there's a lot more to work with. But at the beginning of phase four, you maybe know uh, something like 50% of Chinese by frequency. So there's so many words and, and characters that you have yet to come across that it becomes very difficult to make a piece that is, as I say, not only interesting and engaging, but also at 98% comprehension. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to reintroduce those texts to you later in the course when you're at 98% comprehension of the text. So why am I telling you this? Well, because this is what can help you feel okay about not totally getting it, right? Because if you're going to go back to it later and get 
the content from there, then that will allow you to um, just relax about it. Just go, okay, it's fine that I don't totally get it now. I'll see this again. And of course, you could always go back and look at it again, but we will encourage you to do it in the future. So you don't even have to worry about like, when will I go back and review this? It's like, well, you know, we will introduce it to you at the point in the course where if we were to run it through a uh, text analyzer and cross-reference it against the vocabulary that you know, that boom, now at this point, you know 98% of the characters and words in this piece, so let's look at it again. And when that happens, you'll be surprised at how easy it is to understand. It'll actually be, it'll be super thrilling. So that's one thing that we're going to do. The next thing that we're going to do, and this is in the pipeline, it's, you know, I'm not saying it's going to happen uh, this week, but uh, soon we're going to add preview lessons beforehand. Uh, and in phase four and phase five, these preview lessons will be Luke and I, and uh, we'll be explaining things in English, how to do it. And then when we get in, or how to understand the, the different texts. And then when we get to the intermediate course, we're going to have a Chinese teacher uh, give the preview lessons. So uh, at that point in the intermediate course, the Chinese teacher will, you know, it might be a little bit tricky to follow the teacher at the beginning to understand what he or she is saying. But I, you know, as you continue, it's obviously better to have a Chinese teacher explaining this stuff because then you're getting, you're, you're having two uh, Chinese practices. You're, you're practicing Chinese in two different ways at that point. You're preparing for the text, but you're also, you know, listening to them and how they naturally speak in uh, an educational environment. So that is something you have to look forward to as well, because it occurred to me as I was uh, making the text tracking videos for phase four, that uh, these texts, if you gave a couple of short like instructions and just pointed out a couple of things, it would make the text a lot easier to understand. And it wouldn't be even that difficult for us to do. So we will uh, get on that at some point soon. I want to finish the phase five uh, text tracking videos first. So that's the main priority. But uh, and we're working on creating the intermediate uh, content as well. But still, uh, this is something that I want to get to relatively soon, and it will help a lot with um, recognizing some of these things. Another thing, you mentioned that there's not English translations, but there are English translations for each sentence, because each sentence in phase four is in your Anki cards. So if you're really struggling to figure out what uh, a sentence means, from the lesson, copy and paste the sentence into Anki, uh, and just remember that um, whatever the character is you were learning is going to have that Anki code around it for the close delete. So uh, when you search in Anki, you need to either remove that character or put spaces around that character. Otherwise, it won't, you know, you know how Anki's finicky. It won't search for the sentence properly. But the point I'm making is simply, oh, but you could also search for the English translation. Or sorry, no, you couldn't search for the English translation. You, that's what you're looking for. Uh, but the point is you could search for a part of the sentence and it should come up in Anki and uh, then you can see the English translation that way. So that's just a point um, that's there as well. And I mean, we could potentially add in the full English translation of the text, um, but to be honest, I, I think that you should probably rely less on translation for the longer form texts because that's very important to transition away from that as you get more advanced, so we'll see. Um, so, some other things, there were a couple other comments I wanted to make about this. One is that you're saying that you're studying six to seven hours a day, which is amazing. Holy crap, that's a lot of time per day, Soren. You're going to uh, be fluent in Chinese faster than you think. But one of the things that can happen when you're studying that much in a day is that there, you know, the, the, the information can start to overload a little bit. You know, your, your brain can start to go, 
you know, wow, there's so much stuff happening right now. And then that can create an emotion of like, will I ever get this? But what's, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a day or two after Soren wrote this, he felt a bit of a breakthrough because that's always the feeling that seems to come before a breakthrough when you're like, uh, these things, I'm, I can't quite get it down. I don't feel like I understand this. You know, these uh, sentences, like this way the character is being used here, this isn't the way I remembered it, and, you know, all of that. And those feelings tend to come right before the patterns that you're creating in your neural networks connect, right? And when that happens, it's usually quite thrilling and you feel much better about things. I think Soren even left a, a comment later saying that he was thrilled that he was understanding these these paragraphs. So that's something that, you know, it's sometimes not too, uh, not too consoling when you have that thought to yourself and you're feeling frustrated. But it is worth mentioning that that tends to happen. Um, another thing is that, as we've mentioned before, we teach you the main pronunciation of a character – when we uh, cover the Hansa movie method. And then eventually you're going to need to see that character and its other usages in context. And so this is sort of when that starts to happen. Um, so sometimes you'll see a secondary or tertiary usage of a character, and maybe you don't totally get it right now, but there's only one way to start seeing those secondary and tertiary usages of a character, which is to see it in the context of longer form content. So yeah, this is all normal, essentially. You're not doing anything wrong. Um, and it's okay to accept that you're not understanding certain content because A, uh, you'll get better at reading in general, right, as time goes on. In the same way you've gotten better at reading at the level of the sentence, you're also going to get better at reading at the level of the paragraph. It's just only normal that at the first phase of the course, or first phase that we introduce a new concept that that concept will be pretty tough and uh b you're going to see these pieces of content again so the fact that you'll see them again means if you didn't understand something well you'll probably understand it the next time it comes around at 98 percent comprehension um and that can you know, allow you to sort of chill a bit and just be like okay it's it's all good i hope that that was a comprehensive an answer for soren and uh great question though very good question, and it's uh, sparked us, you know, thinking more about how to make Phase Four better. And uh, yeah, it's uh, this type of feedback is gold for us. So we really appreciate it, Soren. Thank you. Next, Stephanie Arapian on Level Sixteen Unlocked Conversation Connectors. She says these are all really cool and very interesting to learn. I find myself picking and choosing ones that seems to fit me and moving on, knowing the rest will be there if I feel like adding it to my conversational vocabulary down the line. Thanks, guys. And this is good feedback to get because the feedback we've gotten about the conversation connectors so far has been kind of like that these are a bit too hard uh, for the level. Um, but maybe you could do what Stephanie did. Just pick the ones that kind of stick out to you. Like, oh, I would say something like that in English, so I'll just unsuspend that one and use that card. That's perfectly fine. As a matter of fact, that's probably a better way to do it um, because – a lot of the conversational connectors, like the advantage is that they give you this tool, this sort of ninja tool for talking uh, to people. But the disadvantage is that because they tend to lack much real meaning, it's harder to make connections to the phrases because, uh, you know, it's sort of the purpose of a conversation connector to buy you time and say a bunch of fluff. So... Uh, it can sometimes be tricky to make memorable connections to them. So 
perhaps do what Stephanie did and just pick the ones that stand out to you for some reason. And who knows why? That's a big part of mnemonics. Just that one stands out to me. That one doesn't. Pick it up for now. And then as as Stephanie says, you can go back to it later at any time. So good suggestion from Stephanie there. And uh, let's move on to Corinna Wetzel on level 13 complete. She says, I love, love, love learning Chinese with you guys. Thank you for the Mandarin Blueprint Method. Well, we love, love, love making Chinese content for you guys. So it seems like it's a win-win. Uh, she says, I can't believe that I ever tried rote learning before, <laughs> right? Like once you, once you try something that's much better than rote learning, you're like, how, how did I learn anything previously? It's, it happens all the time. So um, except for some pronunciation rules, nothing really stuck from learning back then. And now I'm on character 124 and I can read sentences in Chinese without pinyin. This is just amazing. Seriously, my mind is blown. Thank you for your enthusiasm and for making learning so much more fun. On to the next video. Well, you know, that is the best part of phase three, isn't it? In phase three, you get to go, what? Those Chinese squiggles that I've seen in Chinatown or at a Chinese restaurant, I can understand them and even make sense of a, a phrase. It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. So uh, well done, Corinna. I'm so glad that you're drinking that in at the moment. Next, Darcy Mallon on Level 19 Unlocked Conversation Connectors. I need to take a pause from my studies for a moment to say with much gratitude, thank you, Phil and Luke. The course you've built has thus far been amazing for helping me learn and retain the characters. I just had to learn to trust you and do as I was told, which was exactly what I needed. Confident, clear guidance. <laughs> well, hopefully you're doing what you're told simply because it makes sense what we're saying. We wouldn't want you to just be like, you know, just do what you're told. <laughs> but yeah, I, I appreciate that. I had been quote unquote wandering around with many apps and a couple of courses, some indeed useful, but none address the key issue of how to actually remember the characters and their many aspects. At this point, only less than level 19, each time I don't immediately recognize the character, a rare occurrence now, I ask myself, okay, where was this happening? Oh yeah. Who was running the show? Oh, yeah. What were they using? Got it. Presto. It comes to me. Thinking of a metaphor for the Mandarin Blueprint movie method, for me, it's a wagon wheel, far fewer spokes than a bike wheel, and each spoke, an aspect of the movie, moves towards the center, the character. Should I need a prompt, I just circle the rim. Find the right spoke, and I'm rolling. Once I started making up my own actors' sets and props, as you said I would, I remembered better, deeper. I realized I had not solidified in my mind the earliest characters because I hadn't explored them enough. In fact, now when I see a character I don't know, I think, oh, I just haven't been fully introduced to them yet. Once I meet them in the course and they're more rounded out, I'll always know who they are. They'll be a new friend. Well, I love this metaphor, Darcy. This is a this wagon wheel metaphor is a great way to think of it. It's like, yeah, oh, I'm missing something. Just go around the wagon wheel and what, you think all the spokes are broken? No way. If you made a good or even a mediocre mnemonic scene, you're at least some of it is going to be memorable because these techniques are things we're naturally good at. Right, we're these weird intelligent apes that can somehow remember uh, space, like where we are in space, like nothing else. And we see a face, and we know exactly who it is, and even if we don't remember their name, right? And we can 
imagine loads of different objects. And these are all things that we've just been able to do since we were born. You know, like since we started making memories, we're like, oh yeah, I can recognize faces. Oh yeah, I know where I am in space. I know where the ceiling is in relation to my brain. I know where, uh, you know, how to walk down the street without constantly bumping into the things. And, you know, we have our great sense of depth perception and all of that. And so it's the, when you use these techniques to remember characters, then like you say, it's just a broken spoke on a wagon wheel and that's much easier to fix than building a whole new wheel, which is all rote learning does. Rote learning is just like, okay, just look at this wheel a lot of times. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll remember it. And then you come back and it's just all shattered because there was nothing to keep it together. You were using twigs as spokes as opposed to larger pieces of spoke wood. Okay, uh, the metaphor has gone too far. But anyway, thank you, Darcy, for that great comment. And uh, it sounds like you're having a great time. Tactical question here from Michaela Ellison on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Menkal. She says, is there any difference between Rukal and Menkal? Really, the only difference is that Rukal, an entrance, doesn't necessarily have to have a gate or a door, right? There could be an entrance to a park, and the park may not have a gate, it may not have a door. Uh, so... And you know, it depends on, and also most menkos are also ruko, but you know, it's like the menko for sure. There's a door or a gate or something. And then also there's something like, uh, there's a situation where you have a ruko and a chuko. So the ruko is the entrance and the chuko is the exit. So if you're in like a supermarket or something, uh, I was just in a supermarket over the weekend, and it was like a massive one, Walmart size or whatever. And when you get down to the bottom, they have like a, a pedestrian flow situation where they want people to go in one door and out another door. And so technically you could go in either, but like they're saying, this one is designated as the ruko, as the entrance, and this one is designated as the chuko. But I guess both of them are menko because they both have doors. So uh, that's essentially the difference there. Joe Sutcliffe on New Vocabulary Unlocked, Shouji. What is the difference between Dianhua and Shouji? Is it just that Shouji refers explicitly to mobile phones while Dianhua has a slightly broader definition? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Dianhua can also be a verb to call someone. Uh, well, I mean, so in that case, the verb is really like Da. So Da Dianhua is like, I'll call your phone, right? So, but phone, general term for phones. Um, and gets used in the sentence for calling someone, and uh, shouji for sure is a mobile phone. And, you know, these days, regular old phones in the house are kind of dying off, right? So it's like uh, shouji is much more common. But still, um, I've heard people refer to a shouji as a dianhua, so it's it's definitely not uh, like if you call a shouji a dianhua, you're wrong, because it is. It's a mobile phone. It is a phone at the end of the day. So, yeah. You're exactly right, Joe. Dianhua is broader. Shouji is specifically a mobile phone. Good question here from William Beeman on New Vocabulary Unlocked. Yoshie. He says, Hi. In I thought that the construction indicated a question. Is it serving some other function here? And so uh, what's happening in this sentence this is a good question because, you know, if I say, I'm asking, are you hungry? Right? Yes or no? Uh, I could say, uh, that would also be um, 
a way of asking yes or no question, but you could also say shibushi. And so sometimes, and actually usually it's a question, but in this case, this sentence falls into a longer form piece of content in phase four. And it's also, it's referring to, like the, the point of this sentence is, that's the main point of the sentence. And then whatever comes after that is what they're worried about. Dansin means worried. So, and then, All right, so this is the thing they're worried about. Uh, if the parents uh, are overweight, the baby will or will not, or is or is not, um, be compared to other babies easily become overweight or easily get fat, right? And so what is the point of the sentence? The point of the sentence is that some parents worry that this might or might not happen in the future. And so the might or might not, is or is not, will or will not, it's in the context of what they might be worried about. And so the fact that it's in that context means that it's sort of a question embedded in a worry, if that makes sense. And so the fact that that is the way it is means the sentence would end in a period because it's really just a statement saying some people will be worried about, and then the question is nested in that worry. So hopefully that makes sense. And it's uh, sort of used rhetorically there. Jiggy J. Diderick. I hope, is it Diderick or Diderich? I love that your name is Jiggy J. It, it kind of always makes me smirk every time. <laughs> anyway, so on new vocabulary unlocked for Renwei, he says Renwei and Xiang both mean to think. Is there any difference? Well, whenever you have a question like this, the first thing to do is look at the characters and see if you can what you can delineate from it. So in the case of Renwei, um, we have two characters, so we can see maybe how they relate. Ren means to recognize or identify, right? Renzi uh, means you're able to read. You're able to un- identify letters. Uh, um, and, you know, Renshi means to know someone as in, as in I'm acquainted with this person, right? And so Ren, recognize. Or you could say, right? Well, that's a way you would say to somebody, I mistakenly identified you. I thought you were somebody else. So that thing that happens sometimes in life where you're like, hey, uh, Matt, how you doing? And they turn around and it's not Matt. And you're like, oh, in Chinese, you would go, well, so I recognized you incorrectly, right? So that's Ren. And then Wei is for, so, or maybe as. So I recognize as is sort of what you're saying there. Well, Ren Wei, ta han shou. I think he's very thin, skinny, right? right? Now, xiang, on the other hand. First of all, it does have these other meanings, right? So xiang can mean to miss someone. Uh, xiang can mean to think. It can mean to desire something, right? Um, but when it means think, usually xiang is used in the context of sort of an internal dialogue or an internal search for what you think. So, for example, I say, um, do you want to go on vacation next month to my girlfriend? And she goes, okay, uh, what she's doing there is she's saying, I'm going to sort of look inside myself and see what's there. I'm going to 
kind of introspect a little bit and think for a moment in that way. So it's not so much I identify as or I recognize as in that way, which is more, a little bit more objective sounding. It's more like a internal thought, internal searching of what you think. So, and how might you get a clue from that is that Xiang has the heart component there at the bottom. So if we just looked at these characters, we can kind of get a sense for how they might differ. And then, of course, you'll solidify that knowledge when you see them used in different contexts, when you see Zhenwei used in different contexts and Xiang used in different contexts. So uh, hopefully that's a helpful little set of thought technologies to figure that out. Michaela Ellison on It's a Word for Lai. What is the context for 我明年来中国? I keep missing it in Anki because I replace Lai with Chu. Is the speaker outside of China, but talking to someone in China? I can't think of a context where the speaker would be in China. So this is a great question, right? So like the way she's imagining it is she sees a sentence that says, 我明年 blank 中国 Chu means to go. So she's like, well, wouldn't somebody be saying, if they're saying 我明年, they're probably not in China now, right? So like, uh, it's, wouldn't it be Chu? And um, now, first of all, in Anki, if there's, if there's ever a blank and the difference is lie or chu, for the most part, uh, you can still mark it as right if you got the other one, because most of the time, depending on the context, either one could work because they're, they're always subjective based on who's speaking, right? Um, but they're even subjective at another layer, which is what I'm going to get to with Michaela. So suppose that I'm talking on the phone with my mom. Right. And she says we're, we're talking about when travel restrictions will be lifted uh, for the pandemic so that I can go back home to visit. Right. Well, I might on the phone say, well, after they lift this restriction, I'll come to America. Right. Well, I'm I should say I'll go to America. Right. But it's natural, especially if we're talking to somebody we're close with, for us to kind of set ourselves in their perspective. Right. So. I'm what even when I'm saying that I'm imagining myself standing in the house or her in my parents' house listening to me on the phone, right? So it's like, or even if we're on a video call, I can see her in in the house, and so I might say, uh, next year I'll come to America, even though technically I should say I'll go to America because I'm not there currently. So there's there's that. There's also the possibility, and again, this is always what happens when you only have one sentence, but. Um, you know, it's it's possible that this person was saying a list of places that they'll be going, and uh, they're currently in China, but then they're saying, and then I'll go to Russia, and then I'll go to uh, Zanzibar, and then next year I'll come to China, right? It's possible, right? So that could be the context as well. So there's two sort of things that could make it possible. One is just imagining yourself in that place with whoever you're talking to, if it's on the phone or you're just... Uh, maybe it's a conversation over text or whatever. And then, uh, or it could be that it fits into a larger context where it makes sense, uh, as I mentioned. And there's probably way more context that I haven't thought of, but the it's just like everything else with these types of things. We're not always precise with our language. Uh, and sometimes we sort of project what's going to happen in the future into our, our speech. And so this, this type of stuff happens all the time. Uh, but again, if you get lie or chu incorrect and you can say to your in Anki and you can say to yourself, oh, well, the other one could make sense in a certain context, still mark yourself as right. Don't mark yourself as wrong on those. Another one from Michaela Ellison on It's a Word for Dio. Thanks, that's helpful. Coming back to the sentence, 他们把面包丢在桌子上面. 
In Anki, I'm wondering again about the meaning of dio. Can it mean both to throw and to throw away? If so, is the meaning of the example sentence, they tossed the bread under the table or they threw out the bread that was on the table? Yeah, it's probably going to be throw out the bread on the table. It could be throw, though. Um, for example, uh, you know, there's a, there's a number of words for throw in uh, Chinese, actually. You've got tou, you've got zheng, uh, but another one is dio. Right. And so, like, for example, I noticed that when I started playing Frisbee uh, with a bunch of uh, the the Fei Pandas, which is a great name for the Chengdu Frisbee team, because the word for Frisbee is Fei Pan. And of course, Chengdu is the home of pandas. So they call themselves the Fei Pandas. Uh, and when I started playing with them, I noticed that I would have thought that you might have said To, To Fei Pan. But you actually say Dio, Dio Fei Pan for throwing a Frisbee. Right. And so it could be throw. Uh, it could be throw out. Um, because, you know, of course, throw out comes closer to the meaning of lose. Like, obviously, you can unintentionally lose something, or you could just be like, uh, throw it out, I'm going to lose it, right? Like, so that, um, it, that, that is indeed how you could imagine it. And again, it is context dependent, but I would say that probably it means throw out in this case. Niels Christian Jacobson on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Tai Tai. Is there any particular rule for when one leaves out the genitive de? Oh, geez, genitive is one of those words that reminds me of like grammar classes in like eighth grade. Whew, I can't really remember what it means, but I do know that uh, de as a possessive, you know, 我的太太 or 我太太. Here's a rule for that. Generally, with family members, you can get rid of the de if you want, because the relationship is intimate. Another one, 我家, my house. I don't have to say 我的家, right? I can just say 我家, because my relationship with it is quite intimate. I actually talk, we talk about this in an article um, that is in the sidebar of the course that's a, it's about um, the grammar point when you can omit so check that out and you'll be, uh, you'll be able to figure that out. Georgia Swanson on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Guolai. She says, hello, I have a question about the sentence 我才过来, because in the next sentence it has the l particle, 我过来了, but the sentence with cai does not contain the l. These two sentences seem almost identical to me regarding the meaning, only that one has the element of just now and the other is just sometime in the past. Is there a specific reason that le is in one and not the other? So, first of all, if someone says 我过来了, they're probably, it probably did just happen in most contexts. But their point is that, that's their, on, their only point is that I'm here. Or they might even just say 我来了, 我过来了, doesn't necessarily mean that they've arrived. So it could just mean they've started the process of coming over. So for example, um, if somebody is like, say they're, I'm on the phone with them and they're on the other side of a building, like they're on the same level as me, but they're on the other side, like it's a school or something. And they're, they're several uh, classrooms away. And I'm like, Hey, I need you to come over to help me with this thing. They might say, well, and what they mean is I've started the process of coming to you then. Right. Uh, and again, <laughs> kind of in a, response to what Michaela said before, uh, theoretically, maybe they should say, but they'll, they might also say, because they're thinking about where you are and they're projecting that into their, into their speech. So the point is, 我过来了, 
is only focusing on that. Now, if you say, right? This is, here's the context where I imagine somebody might say that. You just arrived somewhere, somebody else comes in and says, uh, you know, what's this all about? There's this big mess on the floor. And you might respond with, which the, in the sort of inherent, uh, the, um, uh, the meaning embedded in that is, I don't know, because I just got here. So like the, the, the feeling of it, the tone of it is much more like the point is that I just got here. And so for some reason, that's the thing I need to get across is that I just got here. And so, and first of all, if somebody says, that probably has nothing to do with them starting the process of, uh, coming over. It's just they're, for whatever reason, wanting to emphasize that they just arrived. And again, there are a number of reasons why you might want to do that, just like the one I said before. But, um, you know, and theoretically, well, yeah, the point is, there's different contexts you can use. Uh, and so the if you were going to say what's high guolai, it would be in the context of needing to emphasize that point that it just happened. Whereas la is only emphasizing the point that you're either coming over now, you've started the process of coming over, or you've arrived. Uh, and you're just saying, okay, uh, it's happened. That's the only point you're making. Uh, there's no reason why you need to emphasize that it was just now. And then in the other context, as I explained before, that might be why you would do it. And as I like to always emphasize with these types of things, uh, I didn't come, I didn't answer that question because I had studied the rule before. I answered that question uh, accurately because I have just heard Chinese people say this stuff a lot. I've read it a lot. I've, you know, read novels uh, in Chinese where somebody would say what's Guolai or a similar grammatical structure and thought about the context of what was going on. There, those are the reasons why I know. It's not because I studied the rule. So as always, just make sure that when you're uh, understanding these rules, the only thing you want to do with the rule is help it give you a little nudge in the right direction when getting input. But still, your goal for acquisition should always be more comprehensible input, not more rules. Uh, the rules are just a little nudge. As I say, I've said before, 98% of your learning should be based on comprehensible input, 2% based on grammar rules or, or learning rules. Michaela Ellison on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Tai Tai. I think the second sentence, 我太太不来了, cannot also translate as my wife did not come. Because that would use may instead of bu. Is that right? And does the addition of le simply add the idea of now? As in, my wife is not coming versus my wife is not coming now. It seems like the translation is based on the idea that the wife was originally going to come, but now she's not, hence the change. You got it, Michaela. That's exactly right. If I just, if I said, then that's just saying my wife didn't come. There wasn't, there's no implication that she was going to uh, previously, but by saying, there's a in, interpretation there that she was going to come before, and now there's a change that's happened. So I imagine, like, I naturally imagine this is like a dinner party or something, and you arrive alone, and the host says, oh, where's your wife? She's, uh, she's sick. She's got a cold, right? So... These are the examples you might, uh, where, where you can start to understand simply by looking at the grammatical particles. So, Michaela, you're on to it. You're getting there. Good stuff. Good stuff. Good question here from William Beeman on It's a Word for si, which means to die. It says, hi, in 那只小狗. 
I don't understand the position slash function of 在 in the sentence. I know it can designate ongoing action and also location, but I don't see what it does in this sentence after the verb and before 了. Thanks. Uh, so, 是 is the verb, right? And we talked about before how 在 can be used after the verb if the verb refers to movement or location. And uh, what's interesting about this is that clearly the Chinese conceptualized death as a movement, right? You've moved from life to death. And so in the same way I might say 我住在中国, 住 is the verb, to live, right? And so that's related to location, right? So that's a location-based thing. And when there's a location-based verb, that means that uh, we're going to use 在 after the verb. But if it's not a location-based verb, then the location gets uh, expressed through the character 在, and uh, it therefore comes before the verb. But in this case, uh, for another one, 我土在地上, I spit on the ground. Well, 土 is a motion-based action to spit, right? So 我土在地上 is correct, so I spit on the ground. And that 在 after the verb is because 土 is a movement-based verb. So clearly, the Chinese see 死 as being a movement-based verb. To die is a movement. And that's, you know, kind of an interesting, that's an example where language can give you an insight into sort of philosophy to some degree, uh, which is kind of cool, or like, uh, I guess, cosmology or whatever. And so, uh, so, um, yeah, that's, uh, and of course, le indicates that the uh, he, he was alive before and now has died. And so um, the action is completed. And yeah, that's the explanation. William Beeman on It's a Word for 少. Can you guys parse this sentence to get the translation you provide? I find it very difficult, though I believe I know all the words. I especially don't get 对 in this construction. So we actually covered this sentence in the uh, article about 对, which you can find in the sidebar uh, of the course in the sort of grammar point about 对. But there, there's a way you can use 对, which is 对 blank. So towards, in this case, it's ta, so towards him, uh, which is basically, what, what it's saying is, in his opinion. In my opinion, or uh, from towards my perspective, come out the, the speech, you know, let, let the speech come out from uh, whatever the thing that is that's after. Now, most sentences will sweat will say will put 对他来说说, or right at the beginning, right? I'll put it at the beginning of the sentence. But you can throw it around. This is a very spoken way to say it uh here. So many sentences would say 对他来说这些钱不少. Um and so what it's saying is in his opinion, this is no small amount of money, right? This little bit of money here, 这些钱, no small amount to him, right? And so uh, by saying 这些钱对他来说不少 it's, it's almost like the speaker forgot to mention 对他来说 so they throw it in the middle of the sentence that happens sometimes in Chinese you'll see speakers um, you know, they'll, for example 现在 you should put that early in the sentence uh, 我现在录博客 right, so that means I'm recording a podcast right now 
but sometimes you'll hear Chinese people say they'll say, "我录播课现在." Uh, Right, because they'll, they'll realize I, I should have said that earlier, and they'll throw it in at the end. It's not grammatically correct, but it's interesting that they can do that and be understood. And so this has that feel, but uh, it's not wrong. It's like you can say, Usually it would be, But regardless, it's um, that's what's going on here. And I can understand how that construction might not be totally clear, and uh, you know, as Per usual, it will come up later in the course uh, in a grammar point. William Beeman on new vocabulary unlocked for duoshal and duoshal. This character, this word means uh, how much. Most commonly used in duoshal qian, which means how much money. Uh, but can it, al- it can also mean several, and in a certain context, it can mean uh, however much. Right. So how much or however much. Right. So we'll talk about that in a moment, but. Here's his question. Hi again. I'm trying to do these sentences without looking at the translations. In this sentence, however, 除了早上吃的那些以外,每天桌子上的饭有多少,他就吃多少。There are a number of words that you didn't translate directly, like 每天, for example. And the construction, 多少,他就吃多少, really eludes me with the double 多少. Can you parse this? In setting up models for sentence patterns, it helps to see the direct function of the sentence elements rather than just a gloss. Thanks. Yeah, so first of all, this is a sentence that's a part of a larger story and a larger context. So uh, the, the story is talking about uh, how this guy's girlfriend, despite the fact that she eats so much, um, she remains skinny, but he's worried about her because she just eats so much food all the time. And, uh, yeah, we, we, I actually know a few, uh, Chinese women who are like this. They, they, they'll eat loads and they'll just remain super skinny. Uh, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon of metabolism. Um, but the, um, the sentence here, because you're not seeing a larger context, it might be a little bit tough to parse as it is. So my general suggestion for phase four sentences that have the required mark, the little required asterisks, uh, those if they don't make as much sense, it might be because you need to see them in the larger context. And we actually like that it doesn't make sense and that you need the larger context to understand them so that you can really get emotionally that you can't just stop at sentences. You have to keep expanding your context. Um, so the that's the first point about this. Now, when you have a double usage of a question word, it changes it from the question word to the question word plus ever. So if I say nar or nali, that means um, where. But if I say that means wherever you want to go to eat will go there, right? And so there, by saying nar and then the Joe in between, it indicates that there's a, an endless possibility of where you want to go eat. But wherever that is, that's where we'll go eat. I talked about this in a previous podcast and went through a number of different examples. But one of the examples I didn't put in was Doshal. So if you say Doshal, uh, it means how much. But if you say, uh, for example, fan. So whatever food is on the table... 有多少? However much, 就, she'll eat that much. So, 
however much she'll eat that much. And it's a cool way of taking these question words and recognizing that, okay, there is an amount. I don't know exactly how much it is, but for sure there is. So however much, and then comment about it, right? So uh, there's other examples of this. Um, whatever you want, uh, you want to eat something, whatever that is, eat, I don't know how much or what it is, but there must be something. And so eat that, right? Right? That's an example there. Whatever you want to eat, eat that. And so this is that same construction. And you'll get a sense of that as you continue to go forward. Because it's like, again, it's like these types of constructions, they're going to come up a lot. And sure, in the next one you see, it may be um, uh, whenever you want to come over, come over then. Right. That is maybe how you see it next, but it's still the same construction. And your brain is incredible at recognizing the patterns between them and across all of those constructions. So that is the answer to that, William. And I hope that that's helpful. And I'll be curious what you think of that sentence when you see it in the longer form uh, paragraph. Next, we have a question from Rick Engeland on new vocabulary unlocked for Xingwei. The sentence is 这种行为是不好的. I wondered why you can't just say 这种行为不好. Then I noticed the 是的 pattern, which I think refers to past completed actions. So it's obviously referring to a behavior that has occurred, not just prohibiting a behavior that may not have occurred yet. This is very astute. I think that it's mostly on point. So 这种行为是不好的, right? You might be say, imagine a teacher saying this to a child or a parent saying this to a child. They might be saying it in direct response to a bad behavior that the child did. And they're trying to emphasize the detail that it's not good, right? 是不好的,这种行为, this type of behavior, 是不好的, is not good. I'm emphasizing that detail because that's the 是的 construction. Now, emphasizing details tend to be in the past, right? You tend to be telling a story and you're trying to emphasize a detail or you're making a, a point to a child who needs to learn a lesson and you're emphasizing a detail. Or uh, there's a training video on showing uh, what somebody might be doing wrong and the narrator of the training video says, 这种行为是不好的. They're, again, they're trying to get across the point that that is the detail we need to emphasize. And so if you just say, 这种行为不好, there's no particular emphasis and you don't know, uh, there could be many different contexts, but the context is essentially just saying this behavior is not good, right? And so by emphasizing the detail, that is the main point of the 是的 construction. And yes, it does tend to be in the past, but that's just because it just tends to be that when you're emphasizing a detail, it, it's going over something that has already happened, whether it be this has happened in general before, and so we're trying to teach people not to do this. Or it could be a specific thing that your child actually um, intentionally broke a vase, and you go, uh, Cool. Great questions this week. Jiggy J. Diderich on New Vocabulary Unlocked, Gumar. He says, can Gumar also be used for a single person instead of a group of bros? Actually, Gumar. 
usually refers to an individual. I'd almost be in t- attempted to say or attempted to say uh, Gumarman for multiple dudes and <laughs> multiple bros. Um, and this is a bit of an exception to the mun means plural rule. Uh, obviously, usually mun is indicating plural. Ni means you. Ni men means you all. Uh, you know, wa means me. Woman means us or we, right? And so the the example here is, you know, gumar. Doesn't that mean bros or dudes? But really, gumar is usually an individual guy. Like you're you're calling a guy over and you're like, hey, gumar, come over here and help me with this thing, right? So uh, that's actually an exception to the rule. And so you're not going to use gumar very much for a bunch of guys. <laughs> so it's not impossible, I don't think, but you wouldn't really use it that way. So it's a good question because it indicated an exception. William Beeman on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Balbei. He said, could we get you guys or Annie or someone to pronounce this? Balbar. Balbar. With the R on video. I'm sure my attempts would be seen as ridiculous. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's Balbar. And so a lot of times with the adding the R after one of the any particular pronunciation, sometimes, yeah, it can be a little bit confusing. Like, when is it? How exactly is it? You know, it's like, um, for example, uh P-A-N-E-R, second tone, par, right? Young par, that was a, uh, young par is a place called Young Party Bar that I played at in Chengdu five years ago. Young par, but then let's just say, um, you want to say P-I-A-N-R, that would be pyar, right? Like, so, um, you know, pian is a way, is a word you might use for a film, but you might say pyar as well. Uh, and so th- there's different sort of ways that the R affects different syllables, but you'll get the hang of it as you move forward. And always remember that the R, for the most part, with the occasional exception, is not required. It's usually more of a northern dialect thing. However, uh, it can be pretty cool. And uh, But that said, though, Balbar. Oh, I, I'm not a huge fan of that particular word. <laughs> it's a little bit cheesy to me. But, you know, because it's usually used in the context of, like, like, hey, babe, come over here, babe, Balbar. Uh, so, um not a huge fan of that word personally, but hey, that's how it's pronounced. And it really is kind of easy, right? Bar. Just sort of like saying like a candy bar, but a little bit, you know, poppier. And Bihari on It's a Word for Hua. Curious, would these character combinations always be the same meaning as in the example sentences above? And what she's referring to is that Hua, the character Hua, has three main usages. The first is flower, which is a pretty simple noun. Uh, or huar, for that matter, uh, which is also flower. Uh, and by the way, I was just talking about R in the previous uh, section, or the previous question, and if you say huar, it is definitely a flower, right? Because hua is one of those words that also can be a verb. Hua jian means to spend time, right? You would never say that with the R in that case. Uh, so if somebody says huar, they're definitely referring to flowers. And that's because... Uh, you usually add the R to nouns, right? If you're going to add the R hua, uh, which is what that's called when you add the the R to something, it's usually to nouns. Now, an, a, a notable exception is the word war, which means to play uh, or to go out, have fun. Uh, but generally, it's hua. It's uh, for nouns. So we have hua, hua, meaning flower. We have hua, meaning to spend, 
like for example, hua shi jian, spend time, and we have hua, which means uh, fickle, as in hua xin, which is uh, what how somebody might refer to a guy who uh, dates lots of girls, a bit of a player. He's fickle. He his heart. He, he's he's got a flower heart or he's got a he spends his heart. I actually think it makes more sense that way. Like he's like your heart has a limited amount of whatever like you know sort of energy it can give. And so if you huashin, you're like spending your heart too much almost. It's like a way of saying that somebody's being fickle. Would these character combinations always be the same meaning as in the example sentences above, or does the meaning depend upon the context of the sentence, and that's why they're not listed as new vocabulary? So, hua xian and hua shi jian. So, let's look at hua shi jian first. Hua shi jian is definitely two words. Hua and shi jian. So, it's not one word that would make a new vocabulary unlocked situation. Uh, because, for example, you can spend other things. You can hua uh, qian. It's probably the second most common one. Spend money. <laughs> They're probably equally common to say spend money or spend time. Uh, you could say hua xin si. That's a little bit more advanced. Xin si is kind of like uh, emotional energy. So hua xin si would be to spend uh, your emotional energy on something, right? So in the case of spend, it's definitely a word by itself. It, it would not be... Uh, combined with other words to make a two-character word or a three-character word. Now, in the case of huaxin, huaxin is indeed a word, uh, and so it's not high-frequency enough for us to say that this should be unlocked as a new vocabulary word, but we want you to understand that this third usage of hua can mean fickle, and when it means fickle in this way, uh, this is the most common word that you'll see it as meaning fickle. And so... Uh, that was one of those things where it was like huaxin is definitely not one of the most 1,000 common words in Chinese, which is the what we cover in the Mandar or in the foundation course. Um, but we still want you to get that idea that hua has this third meaning. Jason Pan on new vocabulary unlocked for yi wei. In my Anki deck, the card for yi wei has the written pinyin of yi third tone, wei second tone. I reckon it should be wei. I can change it on my end, but just wanted to confirm. Uh, no, it's correct. It should be yi wei. So uh, the character wei can also sometimes be pronounced wei. Uh, it's a it's a duoyin zi. And the duoyin zi that are just tone differences are uh, the easiest to understand because it's not like you have to learn a new pronunciation. It's just a matter of the tone. Now, then the question is, well, in what context is it fourth tone and in what context is it second tone? So um, here's an example. Weila, for the sake of. You'll throw that at the, set, at the beginning of a sentence, or you could throw it in the middle, but like a lot of times you'll say, uh, So it's a, because for the sake of my children, I go to work, right? And so that's an example where wait for sure will be fourth tone. Weila, right? Now, and then there's the character for because, in wei, or in wei. Both are okay, actually. I would say imwei is a little bit more common, but I do hear people say uh, imwei all the time. Um, now, when wei is used in slightly more formal contexts, like, for example, wei renmin er zuo. Wei renmin er zuo. For the people, work for the people. So, like, this is a construction where you put wei something, r something. So, for something... Uh, R, which doesn't really translate to anything, but it, it, you put like 
the action after that. So like, uh, 为人民, so for the people, are So do for the people. And you just put the R at the end. That's a more formal way of putting together a uh, action and reason and action type of structure. And in that case, you tend to say second tone. Uh, and in this character, e way, um, it's always a second tone as well. And so exactly how much it is this way. Now, of course, if you're using way as just a pure preposition, um, it tends to be uh, fourth, like we talked about in the way preposition uh, article or the way relator article, which you can find in the sidebar. So really, it's just a matter of certain contexts use it in second tone, certain contexts use it in fourth tone, and you'll get the hang of it as you move forward. Um, but uh, yeah, and the most important ones for where you are now are definitely Wayla, Imwe, and Iwe. So those are the main ones for now. And of course, Wei by itself is a preposition. So you'll see the more formal ones come up later in your Chinese study. Dom Thompson on Vocabulary Unlocked for Hu. And he says, what's the difference between Hu Xiang and Xiang Hu? Right. Uh, and so this is a great question. Uh, and it really is just a matter of formality. Uh, hu Xiang is a bit more uh, spoken. Uh, it's not necessarily a, a totally spoken word, but it, you'll hear it in spoken Chinese a lot more. And you'll hear um, uh, Xiang Hu in written speech. I just read... Xiang Hu yesterday in uh, the um, China's foreign ministry head, uh, Wang Yi. He's on the standing committee. He's like one of the top people in the uh, in the party. And he was making this um, speech about the most recent sort of tensions between uh, the U.S. and China. And what he said was, uh, we have to work together for mutual benefit. And he used uh, Xiang Hu, right? And... But he's, of course, he's speaking formally because he's a politician, right? So it's like this is um, the context where you might see Xiang Hu. And uh, Hu Xiang is like what you'll hear in more day-to-day -day life. Sabrina Sunderland on compound final Wei Dui, Dui Bu Dui, and Dui Bu Qi. So this is from Pronunciation Mastery. She says here, does Dui Bu Qi work universally? For example, I'm sorry, we're sorry, they're sorry, etc. Or is it only a first-person singular statement and you would add the appropriate pronoun if it's not for oneself? Please note that I'm new to all of this, so I just want to make sure I use it properly. Thank you. So... Uh, this is a really interesting question because there's a few different ways to say sorry in Chinese. And also, it's useful to break down what doibuqi actually means um, on, a, on the character level to get sort of how this works. But the simple answer to the question is that, yes, as long as you specify who is sorry, uh, you, it's fine. You know, you can say uh, if you directly say doibuqi to someone, the assumption is that you're saying I'm sorry, uh, but uh, is also okay. Uh, that's perfectly fine. But let's delve into this a little bit further because is not always the best word to use. So why not? Because has a few different meanings. So is often taught as correct right off the bat. Uh, so like this is the first way that foreigners tend to learn the character because uh, it's quite useful. You just answer somebody with and they, they understand, okay, they, they at least understand that uh the meaning correct right but it can also mean towards doi like i'm towards him speaking i'm speaking towards him right uh and towards 
then has this sort of like sub meaning of your treatment towards your doi dai. Uh, and so doi can sometimes mean to treat someone in a certain way, uh, how you uh, your treatment towards them. Right. And so in this case, it's more of that meaning. Right. So treatment and then. Chi uh, is the final character here, and this means to rise, or perhaps you could think of it as to rise to one's level, right? And then in between we have bu, and the the bu in between is what's called an infix. Now I left the uh, link to our our article on infixes below, and uh, the article on infixes talks about bu and de. So before I explain how this works with Doibuchi, let me just read this section from that article. The structure of the of these infixes is verb plus de or bu plus adjective. It refers to the possible actions in the verb how structure. So for example, the word ting dong uh, is listen, ting, and understand dong, and means to understand, straight up. If you add bu or de in between, you are either saying listen, not understand, or listen, obtain, understand. So, tingbudol means cannot understand, and tingdadol means can understand. So, essentially, the d or the bu or the bu <laughs> means that you can or cannot achieve the result from the verb. So, doibuqi, technically speaking, means treatment towards, the treatment towards you is not able to rise to your level. So it's quite strong. It's like, it's, a, it's poetic even, right? It's like, you know, um, and you can say it in a sentence too. You don't have to just directly say doibuqi. You could say ta doibuqi ni. His treatment didn't rise to your level. He was, he did wrong by you basically, right? wo ma. I did wrong by my mom right? And my treatment of her didn't rise to her level, right? And so that's why it can feel a bit intense. Like now there are many situations where you want to apologize in that way, in which case doibuqi is perfectly fine. And you know, most Chinese people will see you as a foreigner and they'll go, oh, they're saying doibuqi, which is a little bit strong, but you're a foreigner. I get it, right? But still, that's why you should know a couple other ways to say sorry. So a slightly less intense way to say sorry is to say which translated directly means not good meaning. Um, but it also kind of means I'm embarrassed or like oops, I'm kind of embarrassed. Uh, there wasn't, a, it, there was no good meaning to what I did just there, which means I'm kind of embarrassed. And so you would say to say sorry about something, but it's, it's kind of like, oh, I accidentally bumped into you. Right. It's like, if you, if you just bump into somebody accidentally and you say, it feels like my treatment did not rise to your level. It's like, well, that's a, a bit bit too harsh, right? Uh, so, is a bit softer. And you can also use uh, just to politely get someone's attention, right? So, uh, I'll always remember that when I was in Beijing practicing with my band, there was only one guy in the band who spoke Chinese. I didn't speak Chinese at the time. At the time. And anytime we needed somebody from the person running the rehearsal studio, he would kind of poke his head out the door and be like, and um, get the guy to come over. And it's almost like saying, sorry to bother you, sorry to bother you, right? Um, and you can also use 不好意思 
in the context of a sentence. So I'll, I'll always remember this thing that happened um, when I was in Sichuan University where we went to a um, the, the Chengdu Planning Museum, which is a very cool museum. It's like all about the plans for Chengdu over the next 50 years. And they've got this huge model of the city. like It's like a gymnasium size. But um, my teacher was there. And she it was quite bright out, which is actually kind of rare for Chengdu. And she had these sunglasses. And the sunglasses were quite kind of big and a little bit gaudy. And, uh, you know, she wanted to wear the sunglasses because it was quite... Uh, shy. It was very sunny and, and uh, bright, which is the word they use for that, shy. Um, and uh, But the thing was, she's a teacher, she's out with her uh, students. I mean, sure, they're university students, but she's she just felt like, oh, maybe these wearing these gaudy sunglasses would be a little bit awkward. So she said, die. And die is the verb you use for putting on sunglasses or hats. You know, die mo jing. Mo jing is the word for sunglasses, uh, and regular glasses are yan jing. Uh, mo jing, mo means to like kind of, it's sort of dark or inky kind of, so you have more ink added to glass, which is what jing means, so mo jing, uh, sunglasses, right? So, 我不好意思戴墨镜. I'm embarrassed, 我不好意思戴, to wear die. Sunglasses. And that was something that made me realize, oh, okay, even buhaisa can be used in a sentence. And uh, you know, when that happens, um, you know, it's it's gives you an sense of what it really means. And then the, finally you can say bao qian. Bao qian. Bao qian is the most formal of all of these. It literally means uh harbor uh apology or harbor um an apologetic feeling because bao means to like kind of hug. Um, but so hug or harbor. So bao qian means uh, I harbor an apology within me. It's a bit more formal, but an example where you might hear this is like, for example, my band is uh, trying to secure a gig for a wedding, my wedding band. Right. And negotiations are going fine, but then the bride decides she doesn't want to have a jazz band. She wants to have a pop band. So, the agent gets in touch with me, tells me this, and says, uh, right? Because it's a bit more formal setting. It's a business negotiation, and it didn't work out. So she says, instead of saying, or right? So that's the main three ways you can say it. is definitely the least strong. It's more for little things. is a bit stronger and is, uh, you know, as explained, it's technically a uh, infix structure. And then which is... Uh, the most formal, but maybe used in different types of negotiations or in business, perhaps. Next, we have a comment from William Beeman on level 21 complete. He says, I appreciated this discussion on translation. Let me provide some experience gleaned from opera training. An opera singer must learn to sing in multiple languages. It is essential that one knows the meaning of the text in order to be able to interpret it. But it is also essential to understand how the grammar functions so that the singer can put the expression on the correct word or phrase. Therefore, studying an opera score always involves both a ruthlessly literal translation word for word and an interpretive translation that renders the meaning. When studying Chinese in this course, I also do both word-for-word -word and interpretive translation. So in our case, we tend to do interpretive translation because we don't want you to rely on translation forever. We want you to be able to figure out meaning 
uh, directly through the Chinese as you get better and your foundation gets better and your grammar understanding builds and your character understanding builds. And so translation uh, can, you know, help figure things out, but it can also hold you back at certain times. So we tend to do interpretive translation because if you go word for word, first of all, it can make you overthink a little bit because uh, you start thinking like, take the English grammar and change it around. And then I've got the Chinese grammar. And then next thing you know, you're thinking way too much about what you're trying to say. And that's not how uh, speech works. You need to be discovering as you're saying it. Hence why we always harp on comprehensible input. But my point just being, when studying Chinese, like you, you need to take translation as not the most important element. You need to recognize that A, it's kind of word for word translation can be helpful in a particular instance, but it's just a tool. And interpretive translation is meant to help you understand the real meaning. And as William is getting across here, which is really cool, the, the idea that he knows this from opera training, uh, is that both have their usage, right? Um, but still, translation in general is the type of thing that if you can drop it, drop it. And you can't drop it right at the beginning, but it, there certainly is a point where you can. And you should do it as soon as it's reasonable to do so, as soon as you can figure out the meaning just from the Chinese. Ramona on New Vocabulary Unlocked for Bukutsi. She says, Bukutsi. Any good or funny story behind this? Because it means don't mention it or you're welcome, right? So, Bukutsi. Um, and so, any good or funny story behind this? Not bu, guest, ku, air or manner, qi. Well, here's how you should break this down. It's really Bukutsi. So, kutsi is the word which means polite. So no need to be polite, right? And so uh, or don't be polite, right? This is kind of funny. Like almost all the ways that uh, Chinese people say you're welcome is just to say don't be polite. <laughs> is another one you'll hear. No need to say thank you or no need to, you know, don't stand on ceremony, which is kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's nice. It's like sort of, you know, naturally as Westerners, we tend to be very focused on expressing gratitude i think it's a big part of our culture and uh you know people do certainly express gratitude here but they're it's funny that their response to it is never really to say you're welcome directly it's always just to say ah, you don't have to be polite right you know and so it's kind of funny but could see why would that mean polite well think about it who are you going to be most polite to other than a guest right and she in this case is more that manner type of thing so a guest manner is polite. That's what you, when you have a guest in, that's the manner that you should have about you, your qi, ought to be polite. So they just said, well, that's just what it is. So we'll just call the word polite kutsi, right? And that's really cool. Um, there's another word for polite, which is li uh, mao, which is kind of more about what you should do in ceremonial situations. Uh, but it does mean polite as well, but like sort of the etymology there. And so it's kind of like um, both of those are used as polite. And um, then, so if you just say bu it's just saying no need to be polite. But let's take a look at this um, this way that ku is used. So here's a really interesting pair of words in Chinese. So the first one is ku guan, ku guan. This means objective. So guest and then guan means perspective or observe. And then the word for subjective is zhu guan. Zhu guan, and zhu means the host, the master, the lord, right? Uh, the so if 
if you're the zhuren, you're the owner or the the person in charge. Like so, the a house is a house theoretically has a zhuren. It's like a person who is the the master of the house, right? And then you can have a kuren who is the guest in the house. So isn't it interesting that to say that something is objective is the perspective of the guest, kuren, their perspective is objective, and then zhuren. That's the subjective bit. So the bit that comes from the the owner, the host, the person who's in the situation, right? They're in the house. That's there, uh, and, and 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 it's kind of true, right? So like if you're in your own head or in your own environment, you are a bit more subjective in your experience of it. And then if somebody from the outside comes in and then takes a look around, they're going to be more objective because they're less, you know. Involved and deeply in you know, your, it's like what do you say? Um, you can't bite your own teeth. You can't kiss your own lips. It's like you know you, if you're inside it, then you can't be objective about it. But if you're outside of it, you can be. And it's also an interesting way. You can also imagine as a super polite thing. Like so, the the guest, their perspective is objective. They're right, and my, me, the master, the host, I'm the uh, you know, the subjective party here. And it's like very polite in that way. So. It, you'll get a sense of this as you move forward. Look out for how they use ku and ju in more common words, or sorry, more, I should say, more complicated words, more advanced words. And you'll get that sense. It's kind of interesting. So thanks for that question, Ramona, because uh, these are those are the types of words that really show how fascinating Chinese can be. Michael Wells on nasal final yong, which covers yong and yo yong and bu yong. And... Uh, this is a uh, he gives Luke a little compliment here. So Luke told this story in this is for context. Luke told a story in this lesson uh, about how I think he was on the subway and he asked a girl on a date, and uh, her response was just to say "buyong," which is a good example of how you can sort of quickly and not too impolitely uh, refuse someone, which is just no need. And so Michael Well says, "I truly had a good belly laugh at that story." And I have no doubt it'll seal these words in my memory. Plus, it just warms the heart to see a fit, successful young entrepreneur with a charming smile and a hell of a jawline being humble enough to share and laugh about his struggles with romance. Ha 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 ha. So, yeah, the, <laughs> of course, Luke is now married with a kid. So, you know, his struggles with rom romance eventually led to success with romance. So you can never uh, be be too uh, upset about failures because they always lead to the later successes. And uh, <laughs> He does sure have that that uh, strong jawline. Jaw we all like that about Luke. Jiggy J. Diderick on level 16 complete. He says, I kind of forgot about the importance of adding images to the unlocked vocab. Is it that much of an importance or, or is it helpful? You know, so I would say absolutely yes. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that if you're not having trouble remembering the definitions of the vocabulary words, then I guess it's okay, but the thing is, it's so helpful to use images. And also, when you add an image into the image field in Anki, it creates a new flashcard. So you're only getting half the flashcards if you don't add in uh, an image. And to me, the image uh, flashcard is the better one of the two. So when you have the front of the flashcard showing you the image and it's saying, what's the word for this image? That's a direct connection between your visual sense and Chinese. There's no need for English in that particular card. So uh, I would say it's pretty important. And it also helps you create uh, stronger connections to the new words because your connections to your actual lived past experiences is a pre-existing neural 
network of patterns, right? And so you're attaching the Chinese to that pre-existing neural network of patterns in your brain and trying to expand the pattern a little bit to include it. And that's way easier than having the new word come in with no context. Now, it's not no context because the two characters that make up the word, you've learned those two characters. So you do get context from Chinese, but you should give yourself as much, many possible tools for finding the uh, connection to the word as possible. So if you can find the connection via uh, an image that is very strong for you, then success. That's, uh, that's the best stuff. Good question, though, Jiggy J. Chris Lewis on bonus stroke order rule. Six of 12. If your Chinese characters are perfectly drawn or good enough and you don't follow the stroke order, can experts tell if you haven't followed the rules? Does it really matter? I'm sure an expert could tell. Uh, I don't know if I could tell, um, but I'm sure an expert could tell because, you know, if you see Chinese people uh, write in their actual handwriting, um, it's, it's sometimes quite hard to read. It's like doctor scroll. Like when a doctor writes you a prescription, you're like, is that? A language um but uh it's you know though so there, there's that and then there's calligraphy which is a whole other thing um and then there's just writing it correctly right um and making it look closer to being like a computer how a computer might write it or whatever um and so the experts would probably be able to tell because they're familiar with how handwriting works in chinese next question does it really matter and this is an interesting one because it's like kind of less and less. So one of the reasons I would have said that it matters before is that if you see a character in the wild, just out on a, you're looking at a uh, restaurant sign and there's a character in there, one of the ways that you can input it into your dictionary is to use the stroke, um, stroke writing keyboard input. So you write the character in, like you draw it into your iPhone or whatever. And the problem uh, with not knowing the stroke order is that if you don't know the stroke order, it won't recognize what character you're trying to write. But the thing is, since then, there's been the invention of the ability for your camera to point at a character and for it to recognize the character. So that's a solution for getting a character up in the dictionary when you're out in the wild. So it's you know getting harder for me to say why it matters to get the stroke order right. I can say that if you get the stroke order right, it shows that you have mastery of the components for sure, which means you have mastery of the props. So because like a, an individual prop is almost o always only, you know, maybe two to five strokes. So is it going to be really that hard to get those two to five strokes correct? Well, probably not. So if you have the stroke order correct, it does indicate that you probably have mastery of the different components and the different props, and that definitely matters. Obviously, you need to know the components of the character. So mm, it's not like 100% matters, but you know, bear in mind that if you just follow the stroke order GIFs from your Anki cards and in the actual uh, course platform itself, I think you'll eventually just get it naturally. You'll, you'll get the stroke order correct naturally because uh, it's not that hard. Next, we have Liam Lamazares on problem initial J, simple final I, D, G, and G. Hey, guys, still loving the course. I have another question regarding the pronunciation of some of the Anki flashcards of Unit 2, in particular the ones where Z G is involved. For example, the one where there are seven bottles of liquor and eight moms. So, uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, 
and uh, Faga Mama. I was initially confused, as sometimes it seemed like I was hearing the short fifth tone E, and sometimes I was unexpectedly hearing the full E diphthong sound. I looked back over the video and realized that Gook can also be used in fourth tone, which I guess would explain everything. Am I correct in saying that Gook is being pronounced with different tones in the flashcards? Does this happen in spoken Chinese? Does it depend on the setting, formal slash informal? Thanks for your help. Your course is a blast. So if Gook is fifth tone, which it usually is when it's a measure word, then it's going to be the short version of E, just Gook. Just the vowel sound and put, uh, right? But as soon as it's actually a morpheme in a two-character word, for example, guren, guren, then in that case you're gonna have gu, gu, the full diphthong fourth tone, uh, e, guren, and that means individual. So, uh, uh, I personally feel, I individually feel, like my personal opinion is. So it's like that's an example where gu actually will mean will is a part of a word it's not a measure word it's the a part of the word guren in which case you would have the full diphthong e but what it's like it follows the same rule as e does in any case which is that if it's a fifth tone it is not the full diphthong so uh and whenever gu is a measure word it should be a fifth tone another question from liam on problem initial q and simple final i and t he says hi guys me again Quick question. To me, the Q sounds kind of like a TCH sound. Is it a correct way of trying to pronounce Q to aim for the TCH sound while your tongue is touching the middle of your bottom teeth? I certainly hope so, as that's what I've been doing. Once again, thanks for the help. That's not a bad way to think of it. You've got the tongue position right. So if you try to pronounce a TCH with that tongue position, uh, you'll get it right a lot. Just make sure that you have that explosive, highly aspirated uh, you know, um, sound to it, but that's kind of what would naturally happen if you try to create the sound TCH. Um, so yeah, not a bad way to think of it, Liam. Ariel Holly on Vocab Unlocked from Chai. This is the first uh, vocab lesson in interme the intermediate course. He says, I realize that there are no vocab flashcards for new words unlocked in the Hansen words set. From now on, are we just learning the vocab words through the context of grammar sentences in the grammar flashcards. That's correct. Yes. And the reason for that is that as your grammar module gets stronger and you have, you know, you've had the thousands of sentences from the foundation course going through your daily Anki routine, what happens is that your grammar module has started to form. You've, you've got basic structures in your head, which gives you a powerful tool for remembering vocabulary words. Because this was impossible when you first started learning vocabulary. You didn't have enough to create, in phase two of the course, you didn't have enough to create sentences that make sense. But now you totally do it. This At the end of uh, the foundation course, you've seen thousands of sentences, which doesn't mean that your grammar modules are completely solidified. Obviously not, you still have to keep working. But at this point, learning a new vocabulary word is you can skip the part of giving it its own individual flashcard and go right to having it in a sentence. That said, if a word is giving you trouble, if you're finding that a word is, you're not remembering, you're getting the flashcard incorrect a lot, then add a, an image to the sentence flashcard for that vocabulary word. Um, and this will help you create that visual connection we were talking about before 
uh, to the meaning. And you'd use the same technique, the same mnemonic techniques we've been using in phases two through five, but instead of putting it into a vocab flashcard, you'll just put it into the image field of your sentence flashcard. And really, you can do this for any sentence. And the image can be related to the uh, vocab word that you're learning, or it can be related to the meaning of the sentence as a whole, uh, either one. And it's also totally optional, but um, we're all about getting you to fluency efficiently and as soon as you don't have to require uh, you don't have to rely on some some of the mnemonic methods and you can learn just through the context of chinese that's more efficient but you obviously have to level up to get to that point and our judgment so far has been that the intermediate course is the place to make that jump in this section of the podcast we're going to listen to a recording from alex sumray who has uh submitted his recording of the story from Level 21, What's More Important, Looks or Ability? Now, for some context here, Alex is doing very well because this is the very first piece of longer form content. It has probably far too many top-down words uh, overall because uh, you want to try to get for to 98% comprehension, but at Level 21, having any kind of story of substance is pretty tough to do with uh, – the having that level of comprehension. However, uh, I would say that he did pretty darn well. So let's listen to his version. And at, at points, we can maybe uh, cross-reference it with how Annie and Jerry said it. But still, uh, let's listen to how he did it. So that first sentence there is pretty good. Um, when I first started listening to it, uh, the, the initial thought was like, great start. You know, because that's certainly a Chinese person would understand that. Um, and so let's uh, keep going. So one of the things I like about what he did there is that a lot of times that sort of, um, you know, that way that the uh, the idian kind of just sort of trails off towards the end. Like it, it's actually quite similar to how natives will do it uh, because it's sort of in kind of a fifth tone type of feel to it, even though technically it's EDN, right? But like a lot of times it'll be like, it'll be quite quick. So that was good. That that tells me that he's properly shadowing and listening to what they're, uh, they're saying. So let's continue. Yeah, so there I would just say like, Get that, make that Liangren a little bit clearer. So if we listen back, you know, it kind of he, he runs through it a little bit quickly. So let's listen to that again. So it's just a little bit, a little bit quick, and also, uh, he said, right? right? That's a, a first tone, fourth tone is a pretty common tone pair to sort of mess up in a sentence. So no huge deal, but it's uh, certainly like you know, when you say, you want to make sure it's fourth tone. Continue. After listening to those two sentences, I would say that there's a fourth tone issue at certain points for Alex. So, like, um, he wants to turn fourth tone into a first tone, which is a surprisingly common um, mistake because I guess it's because fourth tone starts at a similar starting point to first tone. It just falls from there. And it's like, it's almost like people never get to the falling part. They just sort of get to the ka, like it should be kan, right? But they start with like the ka, right? Up up high. And then they just sort of keep it there, kan, right? There should be kan, right? That's the uh, the idea there. But still, uh, it's still understandable 
to a Chinese person for sure. Uh, so let's con- continue. 你是老板的话，你会要谁？你说服我了。Okay, so let's go back to the. 你说服我了，你说服我了。It's this sentence, and let's just go back and listen to him say that again. 你说服我了。With the 你说服我了 ，it's he kind of said 你说服我了 ，so he kind of mi- he reversed the o and the u. So 说呜哦呜哦说。Right, he kind of said, "Ni show fu wo lo," and the problem with that is that "show" is actually a pronunciation in Chinese. So, just a thing to just uh, turn the、uh, change the u and the o there, and then you'll get that correct. Okay, let's continue.、Uh, we'll continue here to the end, and I'll give my general take on the rest of the、uh, the section. So let's go back a little bit so we catch where we were again. 长相是很重要，那怎么样可以让一个人长得越来越来好看呢？这是穿不一样的衣服。对，最近我吃的太多，所以长胖了。那你陪我去买些衣服吧。没问题，我们走吧。对了，这有一家银行，你去不去掉钱呢？不用，现在在中国用手机给钱很方便。Nice. So. Overall,、uh, very good for level twenty-one. You know, it's like there, his、uh, pronunciation will continue to improve. There were a couple of、uh, issues here. Something that's interesting is he said, "So you don't pang la," right? And that pang there, right? That is uh, actually um, he said the fourth tone perfectly there, and he also said, "So you don't want to eat too much." So ending on a first tone. Doesn't seem to be too much of a problem. So we know because we noticed that there were a couple of fourth tones. For example, 工作 or 看 where he wanted to end the sentence on a first tone. And this is kind of one of those things where you naturally fall back into certain habits. But we know that you can say a fourth tone just fine because when you said 所以长胖了 there was no problem there, right? So what that means is that for sure. You can say a fourth a fourth tone properly, so just think about when it's at the end of the sentence. Still say it in that proper way.、Um, let's see here.、Uh, I thought it was interesting that when he said "may winti," that was when I could tell he was British because、uh, there was a little bit of the the British accent coming in there. Still understandable, no problem. A Chinese person wouldn't like. I mean, having an accent isn't. Doesn't mean you aren't understandable.、Uh, just think of somebody that you know who speaks English with an accent, but has pronunciation that's good enough to understand. You don't really think about it too much. You get used to it very quickly.、Um, and let's see if there were other things I noticed. There were a couple of things like "Zhao Yi Jia Yin Hang," right? That bit was、uh, a little bit rushed, and so I, it was kind of I could see a Chinese person being a little bit confused potentially there, but.、Uh, Overall, great stuff. Keep working on this, Alex. You know, keep doing this shadowing.、Um, but as I say, like for level twenty-one, that is not bad at all. So、uh, keep it up. And anybody else who'd like to submit audio like this and get critiqued, we'll、uh, do it on the podcast. Next, we have our full mnemonic movie scene shares that are the. Uh, full accumulation of the Hanzi movie method, and so for the people on the course, they totally get what this is. But if you've never、uh, heard of this before, this is the part of the podcast that might seem a little bit weird. But essentially, it's just the、uh, people, places,、um, objects, and actions, which are all great mnemonic tools. 
to remember individual Chinese characters. So uh, people represent pinyin initials, places, locations represent pinyin finals and the tone, uh, objects represent the character components, and the actions represent the character meaning. So that'll give you a general sense of it if you've never done this before, and uh, you can also get a sense of how frickin' cool it is when you can learn Chinese by using your imagination. So first we'll start with Anne Bahari on Make a Movie for Jin. Now, Jin means to enter or go in. Uh, it's in the E.N. set, which is her friend Tench's house. Her actor is Julie, female for representing J.I. And the props are a magic flying carpet and a wishing well. Julie is exploring in the backyard of Tench's house. That backyard and Tench's house and Julie covers Jin right there. She finds an old wishing well and a red carpet rolled up on the side. She unrolls the carpet and it swooshes away and then comes back to hover right in front of her, moving back and forth, coaxing her to get on. She hops on and then zoom, the magic carpet goes in to the well. Julie is scared. What happens next? Right. So it's a good way to end the scene where she's, you know, she's uh, fearful of what's going to happen after entering into the well. Uh, I like it. Uh, I think that, um, you know, maybe... There could be a couple of other things that indicate enter. Like, for example, maybe there's an initially a no entry sign, but then the magic carpet manages to turn the no entry sign into a onto a green light or something that that indicates okay, definitely entering can happen now. Uh, but uh, yeah, great stuff. That's a good scene. I like it. Deborah Driscoll on make a movie for Guang, and uh, Guang can mean vast or you know sort of. Uh, it, it, it's not just big, it's also, like, wide and vast. Gru is in the living room of my ANG set. So there we have Guang, right, taken care of right there. Busily unpacking a portable factory for his minions to work in. He keeps on pulling out pieces, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, like a vast sea filling the room. Looking at all the pieces spread all over the floor... He falls down on top of them, frustrated, and starts crying, which is the drop component on the top, calling out, this is just too vast. Of course, then the door opens and a vast amount of minions flood into the room to help finish the task. So here's another thing you could do. So as this is happening, one of the techniques you can use with the Henza movie method is to like blow out a wall or like get rid of other elements of the uh, location. So the living room is the representation of third tone and it's in the ANG set. I, when I was imagining this scene, Deborah's scene, I was imagining that the living room remains, but the rest of the house is gone and the sky is, is visible. And then the as the pieces get bigger and the minions get bigger, that you zoom out and it's just covering a vast section of the globe and just going out. And if you wanted to, in your mind's eye, zoom back in, there you are back in the living room. So you still have the living room visually in your mind. But if you zoom out again, you can see what a vast uh, amount of minions and pieces of the factory uh, where they are. So that might be a way to just solidify the meaning of vast a little bit more. Deborah Driscoll on Make a Movie for Chuang which means bed. The Cheshire cat is standing at the top of a tree, which is growing in my ANG set kitchen. So there we go. We have the Cheshire cat in the ANG set kitchen, chuang, and we have the first component in the tree. 
he stares up at the vast nebula above him, which is going to be the component for Guang. And suddenly, he has a moment of inspiration and creativity. He excitedly rushes down the tree, chops it down, makes it into a beautiful bed, and then the moment passes. He flops down and falls asleep on it because he is, after all, very lazy and the bed is very comfortable. Yeah, I like this scene. You know, the Kodak moment at the end is maybe missing the nebula uh, and you want to make sure that the bed still has elements of a tree in it so that you can tell that the tree was an important part. But still, overall, the scene's quite good. I like it. And, uh, you know, the Cheshire Cat is a great character. Uh, you're giving the char- You're giving the actor the traits that they actually have, thus making the scene even more memorable. So that's great. Deborah on make a movie for Dian, which means like a store or a shop or like a kind of a information Dian, like a little information desk. There's lots of ways you could use it, but generally a store. My sister Danielle, D.I., is planning to open a new store selling freshly ground coffee. Uh, my Jan prop is an old-fashioned coffee grinder. Yeah, it looks like an old-fashioned coffee grinder, doesn't it? However, the only place she can rent is the bathroom of her friend Anne's house. <laughs> I love that. Well, you can you can make a new coffee uh, new coffee store, but it's gonna have to be in the bathroom of your friend Anne's house. Undeterred, she paints the whole bathroom like a vast starry sky. Starts grinding coffee, puts an open sign on the bathroom door, and. The coffee store is ready for business. So I like this. Obviously, turning the bathroom into a store is visual enough because who does that? So, like, it's clear that that's a store. The starry sky is, like, you know, maybe you can imagine, well, I'm in this bathroom. I got to do something to make it better. Maybe I'll just draw a nebula, right? And then uh, the coffee uh, grinder. It says, yeah, it's that's a great scene, Deborah. Tim Amos on Make a Movie for Jiu, which means to rescue. The evil DJ from Zoolander <laughs> has trapped Riverdance in my OU set bathroom. And they are all madly dancing, river dancing, to the DJ's evil music. Gillian Anderson, as Scully, bursts in to rescue them. Okay, cool. So the evil DJ and uh, Riverdance... Oh, right, because the tap dancer is the right side component, so that's a river dance. And then uh, the evil DJ, um, I'd be curious as to why uh, Tim chose the evil DJ for the left side component, but still, uh, that's awesome. And uh, then Gillian Anderson, the representation of J.I., comes in to rescue them, because of course the evil DJ is, uh, you know, trapped them and forced them to river dance. They need to be rescued. And, of course, she can always add some, maybe she throws a life preserver on them in part of her rescuing because that's, uh, life preservers are, or the, the, the life, um, yeah, there's like little rings, the life preserver rings. So, uh, yeah, that's nice. Good one, Tim. Dennis Agonin on Make a Movie for Ling, Nian Ling, uh, the Ling. So, she says, my actress comes into the apartment entrance and sees a T-Rex obediently opening its mouth to let the sergeant count its teeth in order to find out its age. After he's done, he pets the T-Rex on its head, waves at my actress. Okay, so the this means age, and so that's what we have the, um, why he's trying to find out his age, and that's actually, I think that works because a lot of, like, anthropologists or, or people who are looking into how to figure out how old something was might look at something like teeth, you know, how, how many teeth do they have, and that's how much uh, how old it was when it, 
you know, uh, was fossilized or something. And then, so we see here the actress, we can assume that's L-I-N-G is covered there. And then the T-Rex. Um, and, yeah, I suppose the T-Rex might be the Ling component. And the teeth are the uh, left side component. So, nice. Oh, oh, sergeant. No, no, it must be the sergeant, right? Because the sergeant gives orders. So the T-Rex the is a representation of teeth. And the sergeant is a representation of Ling, which means to order. And so... Uh, hence the props being a sergeant and T-Rex. I like it. Yeah, perfect. Nice job, Dennis. Ramona on make a movie for ch, which means to know or knowledge. My ZHI actor is in the front yard of my childhood home holding a cute, small, colorful frog in his hand. Come on, Ramona, give this cute fella a kiss. You know what they say, it may turn into a prince. I'm freaking out as the poison dart frog... Right, that's the left side component, is so close to my mouth. Please take it away, it has poison. You should know this. Sorry, Ramona, I didn't know it. Right, so, okay. First of all, the mouth, make sure that, I don't, I, maybe Ramona, in your head, this is already very clear, but make sure that your mouth has something special about it because your mouth or somebody's mouth is going to naturally be in every scene, so you need to make sure it's emphasized in some way. Maybe it's massive, uh, you know, maybe it's glowing, who knows. Um, and... You know, as for the, I mean, obviously we have the key word being expressed by saying, you should know this. Sorry, Ramona, I didn't know it. And of course, that's words and, you know, it's not exactly a visual representation. But uh, perhaps you could have like a light bulb going over his head in the moment that he realizes what it is and then you after the light bulb goes off you do that thing i don't know if you've seen that meme of the guy who's like he's like pointing to his uh head and he's kind of smiling and it's sort of like eh, yeah you know that and like so after his light bulb goes off then you give him that little knowing smile the knowing smile right but uh yeah nice next we have robert carver on make a movie for Tsing. kira knightley qi is outside the lake o apartment Struggling to help my one-armed best friend, which is the right side component, uh, lift a 50-pound dumbbell, which is the, the, so the first one was the right upper component, the 50-pound dumbbell is the right bottom component. When it slips out of their hands and lands on the hood of Kira's Ferrari, Chua, which is the left side component, which being so light, flips into the air and floats away like a balloon as the two dumbfoundedly look on. I like this scene because a car is decidedly not light, right? So the fact that it would act like a balloon is exactly the type of contrast you would want to show to get across the keyword. That's a great scene, Robert. All the, all the other elements are, you know, they're what they are, they're there. Uh, but the keyword connection there of light and making the most important component act in a way that it wouldn't act normally is a great way to get across the meaning. And finally, we'll end with William Edmeides on Make a Movie for Tsie. The keyword is session of a meeting or conference. The actor is Jacinda Ardern, which is the new New Zealand prime minister, and that's exactly the type of person who might be at a session of uh, a conference. The set is the bathroom of the E set, and the giant axe and Isaac Newton are the props. So the giant axe represents the top slash left side component and Isaac Newton, the yo component underneath. And he picked Isaac Newton because yo means to derive from and 
Isaac Newton created calculus, the style of maths where we can derive numbers from. So nice. So that's a <laughs> good connection there, William. Isaac Newton was getting his brand new laptop ready in the bathroom as to not be disturbed so that he can talk to Jacinda Ardern over a Zoom about predictions for the number of COVID-19 cases that New Zealand is likely to see over the coming weeks. He conversed with Jacinda, and everything was going fine until the Zoom session started freezing over and over and over again, causing Isaac to become so frustrated that he grabbed the giant axe above him and chopped up the laptop. <laughs> nice. Yeah, so I think that the, the idea of having a session, a Zoom meeting, a Zoom conference, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's... It's worth mentioning that this it tends to be used as a measure word for like sort of larger events than a Zoom conference. But theoretically, in the age of COVID, maybe there's a uh, a big world conference that would happen over Zoom. So that's not unbelievable as an idea. So I like it. That's a good scene. Thanks, William. And thank you to all of you who submitted your questions and mnemonic scene shares. And once again, thank you from both Luke and I for the incredible upwelling of support we've had over the past couple of weeks. Uh, we love you guys, and uh, we're going to keep it up, all this hard work. So we'll see you next week.